This is the Disciple Makers Podcast by Discipleship.org. You're listening to Season 7, and every week this season will bring you content about making disciples. Discipleship.org brings together other like-minded organizations who are focused on making disciples. Our goal is to help you become a Jesus-style disciple maker. You're about to hear from Disciple First, a Discipleship.org partner. But before we jump into this episode, I want to share with you a related resource written by Disciple First's founder. It's something you can download for free. Founder Craig Etheridge wrote Invest in a Few. It's a short ebook about getting started with discipleship personally by investing in just a few people. It's a short, practical, and relatable resource. Download it at discipleship.org slash ebooks. Today's episode features the organization called Disciple First. It's from their track at the National Disciple Making Forum called Leading Your Church to Become an Intentional Disciple Making Church. And the episode for today is Revitalizing Established Churches Through Disciple Making, featuring Brent Parker. Take a listen. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Did you sleep well? Everybody's rested? Kind of like drinking out of a fire hydrant yesterday, wasn't it? Yeah, just a lot to take in, a lot that's overwhelming. Uh, so let me tell you a little bit about what we're going to do today. And um, I think you're really going to enjoy today. Uh, the second session, not this one, but the next one, we're going to do a panel discussion. And uh, we're going to have our previous presenters here uh and we're going to field questions. So it's going to be an open discussion about what are the things that you're dealing with, what are some of the issues you're seeing, you're experiencing, and, and how can we you know, tackle those issues. So in the second session, I hope that you'll stay here and be engaged because we want to have a good discussion. You know, there's been a lot of this direction. We want to have a lot of this direction in the second one. And quite honestly, you never know. Your question, there may be somebody sitting over here who goes, hey, we just dealt with that. You can huddle up and learn from each other as well. So uh, we're going to have a great panel discussion in the second session. So we hope that you'll stay for that. Um, But today we have Brent Parker with us. Brent is part of our Disciple First team. Uh, Brent, I first met Brent when he was pastoring in Alabama and uh, leading a great church there. Um, Brent uh, came to one of our forums and started hearing about disciple making. Um, he went through our cohort with about, I don't know, about eight other pastors, something like that, six or eight other pastors, and walked through uh, our, our eight-week cohort. From there, he began to disciple people. He uh, moved to a, a new church in Mississippi, Van Cleve, Mississippi, where he is uh, serving now, uh, kind of a bedroom community of the coastal region in Mississippi. Um, and there he started off discipling his staff, discipling key leaders. Uh, they've now multiplied three and four generations deep in that church and is really transitioning the whole culture of that church. So I'm not going to shoot a lot any more uh, info than what he's going to share with you. But really we're talking today about church revitalization. Uh, if 90% of churches are plateaued or declining, that means we all have some work to do in the space of church revitalization. And that um, how disciple-making impacts that. Uh, Chris Moody has also had experience in church revitalization in a pretty dramatic way. Uh, I've had experience in church revitalization, so who knows? Maybe the second session that may come up again and talking a little bit more about that, all right? But uh, Brett Parker is going to share with you today revitalizing and giving new life through disciple-making. So would you give a big, warm morning welcome to Brent Parker. Yes, real quick note about that. So Craig came to visit with us the 1st of August this year in his sabbatical and he came up, and he was standing there on Sunday morning in worship, and I said, hey, I want to introduce you to your grandchildren. You know, and he just started smiling from ear to ear, and so the guys that I had discipled came up and began to introduce themselves, and they were like, hey, let me introduce you to your great-grandchildren. And so the guys that they were discipling started coming up, and, and Craig and I were just rejoicing over that, that in just a few weeks, 21, 30 weeks or so, we had already reproduced that second generation, and those guys in 2020 will launch in theirs 
And so we'll be forward deep. And they say that once you get into the fourth generation, you've got to move and establish. And that's what we're going for. We're getting a movement that's stable, that's certain, and it keeps on moving. And so I want to start us off with prayer this morning because uh, I'll probably look at I'm as nervous as nervous can be. Because, I mean, I'm looking at a sea of folks who've been doing this for a while. I, I know you've been in the trenches for decades. And I'm quite humbled that you would even take the time to come and hear what uh, a redneck from South Mississippi even has to say about his own personal journey to trying to see my Lord's church be healthy. So can I pray for us, please? So, Holy Father, we come today. We're humble. Oh, Lord God, we know that without your power working in us and through us, we can accomplish nothing. We've seen giants rise and fall as a result of various different models and theories and philosophies, Lord God, but we know that it's only this church that is established on your lordship that will be able to withstand the attacks of the adversary. And we do have an adversary. He moves around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, and he wants to wreak havoc of your bride, the church. And you have ordained, you have commissioned us as overseers, as protectors, as providers, as equippers. And so, Lord God, I'm just praying that we can put our hearts and minds together today and that we can agree that the church is not healthy. But we can also understand and have the conviction in our heart that we have everything that we need to help her to be healthy right here in your word. So God, help us to mine it. Help us to understand it. And more importantly, help us to apply it faithfully and passionately on a daily basis. God, I love you. I am your servant. Help me to speak your words boldly, clearly, and concisely. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so uh, a few key details about me before I get into the technical information. First of all, the most important is this beautiful woman right here. This is the love of my wife for tw- life for 20 years. Her name's Jennifer. Uh, fortunately for me, not only was I called into ministry, she was too. And so in our years of struggle and hardship, she's been right there with me through thick and thin. She calls me to accountability from time to time saying, where are you going? You realize you've gone three three nights this week, so and that's when I know it's time to slow down. Uh, our beautiful family, I've got a senior here. This is Sarah, our firstborn. She's about to graduate high school, which makes me feel old. Here's a sophomore now. Getting, you know, She's about wants to graduate too. And then 11-year-old son who thinks he's 18 years old, and he and I battle about that all the time. So, But this is my beautiful family. Um, bless them. We've moved from time to time. I'm a PK. Just kind of let you know my background. I grew up, I was in church nine months prior to my arrival on this planet. You know, my dad pastored mostly rural churches, country churches. And so I'm telling you that to let you know I've seen the highs and the lows. I've seen the great points, the pinnacles. I've seen the deep, dark valleys. And one thing has not changed through all those seasons, whether I was the PK or whether I was in the position of lead pastor. And I've been in that position now for 16 plus years. And I know some of you are going, are you kidding me, kid? You're in preschool. comparing." But what I'm telling you is this. One thing that hasn't changed in all that time is my love for my Lord's church. I love the established church. My heart grieves when I see a church struggling. And I know she can be more and so two things we're talking about today is revitalize. We, we, I use the word revitalization. That's become a buzzword. I, I know you're picking up on it. It kind of started in 2016, but it's really coming to the forefront now. And I'll explain why in just a moment. But when I say revitalize, the idea is to give new life to. But I like to go back to the term vitality. The idea of capacity for the continuation of a purposeful existence. In other words, we don't want to maintain. That's nothing. That, that doesn't excite me at all. We're not just trying to have a maintenance plan. We want to put new life into these bones. We want to be the Ezekiel who God sent out into the valley of dry bones. He said, prophesy, son of man, prophesy. And he did. And the bones came to life. And we know the rest of that story. A beautiful demonstration of what happens when the power of God, represented by the Spirit of God and the Word of God, come together collaboratively to bring life into what was once dead. Now, like the lady with Barney yesterday, I'm going to start off with being a bearer of bad news, but I think it's actually good news. So, from the start of my seminary days, this was a number I heard repeatedly over and over again. 80% of churches are plateaued and declined. I mean, I remember 80% of churches plateaued, and everybody said, well, who came up with that? And finally, I think they gave it to Billy Graham. 
I mean, he's not even alive now to defend himself. So they all say, well, Billy Graham came up with that number. I mean, who's going to argue with Billy Graham for crying out loud, you know? But fortunately, some statisticians came along, and I've got these in your notes, and they started digging a little bit deeper, and they kind of created five categories. And I've got them for you right here. Fast growing, growing, steadily declining, rapidly declining, and declining toward death. How many of you know the name Tom Rainer? I like Tom Rainer. I think he's a great statistician. I think he digs beneath the surface level of statistics, wants to get down into the true core of the church uh, through his research. And so in 2009, what he did is instead of conducting a new study, he collaborated several different good, solid studies into one uh, document, one report. And here's what the report showed. In 2009, 12% of churches were growing at a rapid pace meaning 5% or greater, 12%. Now, let me qualify this number. I apologize. Like I said, I'm a little bit nervous here. So where did this come from? That's his estimate. He estimates there's roughly 350,000 evangelical churches in America today. Um, And he said, you know, you can give or take that, but 350 is a good number that you can really sit on and begin to base all of your calculations off of. And so in 2009, 12%, that's great. You know, just a rough, that'd be 35,000 if it was 10%. 23% were growing at a nominal, which means less than 5%. So there's still some growth there, but we would consider it to be nominal. Then we kind of get into this lower bracket. 34% were declining at zero. So they were either plateaued or slightly declining. 21% were in rapid decline. And of course, 10% were going toward death. So obviously, all of those categories are not encouraging for us in any way, shape, or fashion. But what Rainer did this year early on, and I think Exponential was involved in this to a degree, if I'm not mistaken, but he went back and did the same thing again. He took uh, similar studies to what he'd done in 2009. He collaborated them again, and here's where the news got worse. Okay, so now, a decade later, only 3% of churches are growing at a faster pace than 5%. So you see the dynamic difference there. That's almost a 10% decline, which doesn't sound like much, but obviously that's tens of thousands of churches that have come out of that category. Uh, Some have come down into the next category. 24% of churches are growing nominally, so there's a 1% growth there. So that's where some of that 12% went to into that category, but the overwhelming majority of those went to a different category. I'm going to get there. 32% of churches have declined in a plateaued sense meaning there's nominal decline, or there's at least a 3% there going on. Uh, 22% are declining at a faster pace, meaning 2 to 5%. And here's the one that really breaks my heart, 19%. So notice this. We had, an 11, we had a 9% difference here. We had a 9% increase here. See that correlation? I, I, think, there's, I think there's something to that. of churches are declining toward their death. That's that's huge, folks. I mean, when you consider the fact that yesterday Craig talked about, what would you say, brother, we need 1,600 churches a year to keep up? Or is it 1,900? We need 1,900 churches a year to keep up. And yet we're losing churches at that pace. that's, That's counterintuitive to what we want to accomplish. And so let's put that into real numbers. Let's get out of percentages and go into real numbers. If 350,000 is the number we're working with, that means that nearly 100,000 churches are healthy, which to me, that's great. That means there's absolutely hope. Uh, Not quite a third of the churches that exist are are in a growth pattern of some sort that's greater than 2%. But that also means that 73% of our churches are not healthy. You know, that's 255,000 churches that are in need of some sort of revitalization. Also, if you look at the bottom I've got, that means that 66,500 churches are in danger of dying at some point here really soon. Uh, In my context in Mississippi, a lot of those churches might hold on for a decade because they're family churches. And so it doesn't matter if there's only two families meeting, they're going to hold on. They'll find a pastor somewhere, somehow. So really, they're already dead in a sense. They just haven't closed their doors yet. Uh, And some of you can identify with that in your context as well. And so what I'd like to do is just kind of give you a few, um, I guess you could call these characteristics. Um, Kudos to a guy by the name of Mark Clifton. I don't know if you've heard that name yet. He's from the North American Mission Board. That is one of our denominational affiliates that deal with North American missions, as it says in the name. 
But he focuses specifically on revitalization. And in 2016, he released a book called Reclaiming Glory. Great read. You can read it in two hours. I promise you can. And he identified eight key characteristics of a dying church. I want to give you five. There are four of them I really want to focus in on. The first one is they value their own preferences over the needs of the unreached. Yeah, he he nailed that one pretty quick. Yeah. The second one, they have an inability to pass leadership to the next generation. Kind of what Dr. Moody talked about yesterday, that idea of leadership development. Part of leadership development means you're giving it away. Otherwise, why are you developing them? Uh, They cease often gradually to be a part of the fabric of their community. That's number three, and, and I've seen that as well. Number four, they grow dependent upon programs or personalities for growth or stability. Um, just an example there, in a lot of cases, a dying church or an unhealthy church will call a vibrant new pastor. Hey man, God's a new pastor, and they're pumped. And he comes in there, and he's got great ideas and concepts, and he's ready to implement some of these things, and he immediately hits the wall. And if they let him stay, if they don't run him off, in, in my denominational affiliation, they'll run you off in a heartbeat. But if they don't run him off... He gets discouraged because all of the, his attempts to bring some health and vitality are met with opposition because they're not the way we've always done it. And I know that's an overused cliche, but it is what it is. And then lastly, and this is the one that probably is the most detrimental, they anesthetize the pain of death with an overabundance of activity and maintaining less fruitful governance structures. In other words, they're busy. They are super busy, but they're not really accomplishing a whole lot in the grand scheme of things. And so these are five of the eight that I just want to kind of give you from the Reclaiming Glory book because I feel like they're absolutely pertinent to our conversation today. Can we all agree that healthy things grow? Yeah. Yeah, they do. I mean, if you look outside and you see a, a tree that is getting bigger by the year, it's a healthy tree. If you go to a child and that child if from year to year is growing in structure and they're growing in knowledge, you know, that's a healthy child. We categorize that as healthy. Healthy things grow. But let me just tell you the paradigm that I was indoctrinated may be strong, but that's the way I associate it. The paradigm that I was indoctrinated is that healthy things grow by addition. They grow by addition. And so my convention, the Southern Baptist Convention, was always pushing to have more baptisms have more people in worship. That will demonstrate that you're healthy because you're growing by addition. There are dangers there that maybe we didn't perceive or foresee, but they're there, and I fell prey to them. And so I want to invite you on a journey with me. Um, The journey for me starts with my call. I was called to ministry 2001. Um, Again, thank God my wife was called along with me. Um, I, my first church came in 2003. Meanwhile, in 02, I go to seminary. I want to be trained. I had a bachelor's degree, but it wasn't education. It wasn't um, pastoral related. It was education related. I wanted seminary training. I want somebody to teach me how to lead a church. I had great men of God, great women of God, pour into me, pour into me. And so I'm listening to what they're saying. I'm reading Purpose Driven. I'm reading Hybels. I'm reading all the guys who are supposedly doing it well. And what they're saying is you've got to attract them into your fellowship. What we kind of begin to, to title Seeker Sensitive. It was twofold. It was activity, event driven. It was also personality driven. Now, the problem that came with that, and it worked. It worked. I implemented it in my second church. My first church, I was there 11 months. Praise God, they did their job. They ripped the S right off my chest. I needed somebody to tell me I wasn't Superman and, and convince me of that. And they did. Man, I left there crawling on all fours, crying like a baby. You know, But that's what I needed. I needed that. And so in my second church, I began to look at it and hear all these ideas about seeker-sensitive models. And so I began implementing that. We had events. We had seasonal events. I began to try to modify toward more of a, not necessarily um, a full-blown, uh, how do you say, contemporary but in the middle of the ground, because I wasn't in a rural setting, so I had to be careful there, you know. And so we tried to do that with volunteers. That was tough. Um, everything that was attractionally driven, we were trying to implement that. And here's a problem I ran into. Uh, I ran out of resources. Yeah. I didn't have the people who were trained to do contemporary. I didn't even have the people who were trained to do a modified. My guy was a volunteer. He could do hymns. 
And, you know, and my pianist was phenomenal, but she could only do whatever her husband was directing her to do. I didn't have the financial resources to keep doing events. They cost money. I didn't have the volunteers to keep facilitating these events, to drain them up. I was the one doing all that. I was the only full-time staffer. And so I ran into a problem with resources. Secondly, when I was doing the personality-driven thing, that was only as good as my newness. As soon as the new wore off of me and the next church down the road called a new pastor who was maybe more charismatic, a more eloquent speaker, more educated, all these different things, guess what? The people that I drew to me left me and went to him. We were just swapping sheep around. We weren't really experiencing kingdom growth. We were adding or we were growing through addition. And so the resources were done. There was no lasting connection. There was no genuine relational connection at a deeper level that would have someone commit to me or commit to my Lord's church over a longer period of time. And then, of course, the ultimate result of that was it was just a consumer-driven model. I fed that consumer-driven mentality, and the consumer-driven mentality is never satisfied with what you have today. What can you give me tomorrow? And so I'm constantly having to one-up myself. I'm constantly having to go bigger or go home. And I don't know about you, but there came a day when I sat in my office and I was frustrated. Because I'm a dreamer. I'm a big picture vision guy. That's my wheelhouse. And even I was exhausted. Completely exhausted. Because meanwhile, while all this new was happening, the old was not properly getting seen to in some capacities. And we weren't really growing in a healthy model. It was growth by addition. So... In that time, I finished that degree. Um, I'm experiencing problems with my church because I haven't really helped them to move along the paradigm spiritually. All we've done is we've made the board look better. The board went from this number in Sunday school to this number in Sunday school, and I was feeling pretty good about myself. But spiritually, we were still infants. We were still babies. Milk was all they could handle. And I knew in my heart that could not possibly be the model that would get us to the next level. And so I'm finishing up my master's degree, and I said, I, I need to go to another level. I need somebody else speaking into my heart. And so I went about pursuing a doctoral degree, and that's when I began to see the small group-driven model, which in a sense, and it's not always true, but in some sense, it's program, it's program-driven. It's not always the case. Please hear me out. You can't put all of those into one uh, category. But in my case, it was program-driven. Um, and so, again, I began to have it. So at first, it was great success. Because, I mean, Beth Moore was pumping them out like crazy. You know, and then you have Priscilla coming on the stage. And Priscilla, you know, having the influence of some guy named Tony Evans. I don't know. Maybe you've heard of him before. You know, you can see it boiling out of her. You know, uh, she was coming along. And so with our ladies, we had that. Tony Evans was producing a few things with men. You had all these different programs and different uh, things coming out. And so we were focusing on the program driven because everybody said in order to get bigger, you got to get smaller. You know, bigger or small. So get everybody in a small group, everybody in a small group. And so I began to turn all my attention toward investing in that program-driven model. Worked at first. Worked great at first. We were getting connectivity. I needed connectivity. We were getting connectivity. My problem was they were connecting to the program, not to a process. And there's a difference. And so, again, guess what wall I hit? I hit the resource wall again. Because more, more groups meant more facilitators. Guess what I had not developed? I had not developed more facilitators. Now, I had people who could stick a DVD in the DVD player and mass play, but I didn't have people who could take it to the next level and say, hey, now that you've studied this, what are you going to do with this? More importantly, make disciples. And so I had that. Number two, I was constantly having, because I'm not the kind of guy who just says, do this resource. I want to know what's in it. I want to make absolutely certain that my folks are looking at biblically sound material so that I'm not trying to battle some heresy seven weeks later after they finish up this course. And so I'm having to review, 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 review. I'm, I'm wore out. I'm tired. My head's spinning. You know, because again, I'm still the only guy because I haven't developed any leaders to come alongside me in this journey. You know, and, and the program, I'm, I'm space, I'm out of space. You know, we need to do this. We need to do that. We don't have money. We just paid off this debt that they created before I got there. You know, it was only $200,000, but we're running 200 people. That's a pretty big debt, you know. And so I, I'm not ready to jump out there and create another debt. And so I'm out of room. I'm out of time. I'm out of teachers, all the resources. And again, there's no intentional leadership development. 
You know, Moody talked about it. He talked about it yesterday. You can't overplay the importance of leadership development when you're trying to help a church be genuinely healthy. Because if you're trying to invest it all in yourself, forget it. You will be worn out. And last of all is that that became a competence-driven model. And here was my thinking. If I get enough information in their head, eventually it will translate to their heart, and eventually that will go to their hands and their feet. That's what I was thinking. If you think anatomically, if I can get it from in their head, it will eventually find a place in their heart, and that will translate into their hands and their feet. And that was a bad paradigm. I was completely wrong about that. But it was growing by addition. And one last model, and I don't mean to be negative when I use this term, missional impact. I'm not saying missions, and please hear me out, I'm a hardcore missional impact guy, both on the local and on the international level. I push my folks in that direction. But in each one of these cases, and I started to write the word up here, in each one of these cases, the problem was this. Each of these was this. Each of these was into itself an end instead of this. The means. Each one, even the, the, the mission trips we took, they were an end. Once the trip was done, we were done. We celebrated building a house. We celebrated uh, leading different groups in how to do a Bible school, which I was most proud of that because we at least equipped them to do something after we were gone. You know, we celebrated feeding the hungry, and there's nothing wrong with any of that, except I did not have it placed within the paradigm of a process. It was just one more thing we were doing. I guess what I'm trying to say is this. We became really, really busy. We became an activity-driven culture. Whether that was volunteering at our local Right for Life, you know, pro-life group. I can't remember what particular was and one was in both of my different in both of my instances. Or whether that was volunteering with a hospice group to build ramps and things like that. We did a lot of that. But all of that was to make ourselves busy, as Mark Clifton said, to anesthetize the pain. Of over, you know, to of the pain of death. We were just trying to cover it up. Or we weren't. I was. My people were just doing what I told them to do. They were just following their passion. And so, personality, act, you know, event driven, didn't work. Round of resources, no connectivity. Small group program driven, didn't work. Round of resources, no leadership development. Missional impact model, didn't work. <laughs> Because the trip or the activity was the end to itself instead of a means to a greater purpose, a lasting developmental purpose. And how many of you have seen the, the movie National Treasure? Yeah, man, absolutely. You got Nicolas Cage living up, typical Nicolas Cage, jumping this. Which is funny, in movies now he jumps casually. You know, he jumps a little gym. I think the knees have caught up with that brother. But anyway, so in that movie you start off, you got him, he's searching for all these different artifacts because they're all going to be clues that are eventually going to unlock this awesome, unmatched world treasure. You know, and so I was kind of on that journey through education and through uh, mentors and all that, trying to figure out, say, somebody give me some nugget. Where's the silver bullet and all this stuff? And so I felt like Nicolas Cage. I completed a master's. I completed a D-men. I had all the education I, my brain could possibly absorb. But I felt just like Nicolas Cage. And you see his discouragement, don't you? Because this is the point where he took out the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration. And he had the glasses. And if you remember, he looked at the back of it. And all it said was here at the wall. He hadn't discerned yet that he had to change lenses. Remember that? He didn't discern that until later on. And you remember, he was so discouraged. Of course, his dad was in the background. It's just another clue. And it's going to lead to another. You know, he was giving him some great encouragement to keep persevering and push on. I was Nicolas Cage. It was about 2014, and I was frustrated. Because I had exerted all this energy, preaching sermon after sermon, reviewing program after program, trying to implement new initiatives and activities. And all I saw was babies who were babies six years prior were still babies today. And I was a very defeated young man. I was in my probably late 30s. And that's when God intervened. Man, intervened in an awesome way. And through the Alabama State Board, I was introduced to a guy named Craig Etheridge in the book Bold Moose. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. At first, this book only made me more frustrated. (laughs) And the reason why is is because he confirmed what I already knew in my heart. That inevitably, for the church to be healthy... We can't just grow for the sake of growth. 
Um, it's got to be a certain type of biblically-based growth. And he shared his journey, and I identified with every element of that journey. My dad was a pastor. I'm a PK. He never discipled me. Guess what? His dad was a pastor. His dad never discipled him. And so the model was not in place. And none of my professors really discipled me either. They never said, hey, Brent, let me show you how to invest your life into another man or woman. They didn't do that. And so I didn't have a paradigm to operate within for disciple-making to be the primary purpose of my Lord's church. And so I was frustrated, and I left this event, this forum at First Baptist Pelham in Alabama, frustrated. I was like, what am I going to do with this? It's more information. It's another clue. Where's it going to lead me? Well, here's where it led me to this statement. Healthy things grow, but they grow by multiplication not by addition. And there's a difference. Here you see a grove of apple trees. This one apple tree alone, if you go about the process of intentionally cultivating the soil, carefully protecting every apple that appears on there, it can bear a lot of fruit. But there's eventually going to come a point where that tree is going to max out. It will have its full capacity for what it can sustain in regards to its fruit productivity. However, if I, take a, if I take one of these apples, and I know, I'm not a horticulturist, but if I take one of these apples and I plant that in the ground, that seed, and I get another tree, then I can double the productivity. And if I continue that process, eventually I've got a whole orchard of apple fruit-bearing trees. What Craig told me was this, healthy things multiply. That completely, and you're saying, well, that, well, duh. Well, I'm sorry, I, I hadn't come to that simplicity, you know. Keep it simple. I hadn't kept it simple. I was thinking philosophically complex things. Craig said, whoa, 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 ratchet back a little bit. Healthy things multiply. And that's when God began to guide me into a season of disciple-making, great commission-driven church growth. And that's where revitalization is going to happen. I'm telling you, if you came today looking for radical, you know, I'm not David Platt, you know. But what I am is somebody who's right there with you in the trenches on a daily basis trying to figure out how we can better help my Lord's church to be healthy. So how can we do that right here? Jesus gave us the formula. He clearly stated, came, Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples. He didn't say make attendees. He didn't say make large congregations. He said make disciples. How? By baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, do, carry out, obey everything I have commanded you. I love this last statement. And remember, I'm always with you. Who is I am? The one who has all power and authority. There it is. There it is, brothers and sisters. There's the key. And so when I look at that, I begin to think about multiplication as being the key to healthy growth. I said, there it is. The disciple-making model answers the, th the three key questions of church life. Why do we exist? What are the non-essentials? Those things we absolutely will not compromise on. And how do we do this? Now suddenly, instead of my focus being wide and broad, I come down to a laser focus driven by these three key questions. Why, what, how. And that's kind of the way I function. I function in the why, what, how. If I'm in team meeting, we're brainstorming, I'm always functioning around why, what, how. And my guys know that. They know that if they come to me with an idea, I'm going to say why, what, how. You know, why should we do that? What does that look like compared to our core values? And then secondly, or lastly, how are we going to do that in terms of a process? And so three key parts of that. Why means purpose. Obviously, what's our purpose? To make disciples. What are the non-negotiables? I'm talking about the term culture there, which is key. And then lastly, pathway. Um, process, whatever word you want to use, something that shows movement of taking someone from unbeliever, immature believer to a full-blown disciple maker. So let's start with purpose for a moment. All right, so when we're talking about purpose in regards to being a disciple-making church, to me, we're talking about focus. Bringing everybody and everything to one concerted focus. Being laser intentional with why we exist. Well, it said it pretty plainly and clearly. We exist to make disciples that make disciples. 
to the third and fourth generation, if you want to add that in there as well. We make disciples that make disciples to the third and fourth generation, which is technically a movement. Now, one of the things that we have to be careful about, I think, is we've got to define our terms. What do we mean by this word? You know, and, and you can go back into the Greek and you follow that even into the Jewish mindset and the Hebrew and, and get all into that. But I kind of, you know, I borrowed this in a great regard from Craig. Is somebody who's becoming more like Jesus and carrying on his work? A disciple is someone who's becoming more like Jesus in his character and carrying on his work in his conduct. No matter where they're at. If they're in ministry or they're in the, 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 uh, the mainstream as far as whatever that may look like vocationally, they're becoming more like Jesus and carrying on his work. And another thing that Craig brought in my life was a system for equipping people to do that. Because one of the things he said in Bold Moves is you got to help them learn how to walk with God. They've got to know how to have a daily walk with God where they are maturing into that Christ-like image. I like to call it the self-feeder model. No longer are they dependent upon me to give them all the information. They now have the capacity to go to the vast Word of God and mine it out for themselves. That's key. It really is. Second thing is, you've got to teach them how to reach their world. I know we've got EE, we've got uh, The Bridge, we've got uh, Share Jesus. I mean, there's all sorts of models, but inevitably, every single evangelistic uh, system has got to come back to relationship. Relationship. And so Craig said, hey, you've got to teach them how to build relationships and how to use that as a means to communicate in the gospel over a period of time as the Holy Spirit guides. And then lastly, and most importantly, you've got to teach them how to invest. You've got to teach your people how to take all that you've given them and invest that into somebody else. Otherwise, it's just another program. And if you hear me say nothing else, hear this. The disciple-making model for church health is not a program. It's a process. That's so important. It's a process. So why do we exist? To make disciples, to make disciples, to teach people how to grow in their walk with Christ, to teach people how to intentionally engage their world with the gospel, and to teach people how to invest their life in somebody else. We could really stop right here, and you would have the very tool you need to revitalize your church. I'm telling you. But there's one thing about it. And here again, it's funny how quotes float, but I heard a quote one time that said, Culture eats strategy for lunch. Well, then later on I hear it was actually breakfast. So I don't know if it was lunch or breakfast, and then somebody said, well, Peter Drucker said it. Well, no, Peter Drucker borrowed it from Neil Collins. No, something. So I don't know who you're going to ascribe it to. Don't ascribe it to me, because I put it in quotation marks to try to be true to the thing. But what do we mean by culture? It's important. Culture will eat your strategy for lunch. What do I mean by culture? Well, I take this from Aubrey Malfers. It's a little bit technical, but that's just who Malfers is. It's a unique expression of its shared values and beliefs. A church's culture is a unique expression of its shared values and beliefs. And when we're talking about culture, for me, we're talking about the foundation. We're talking about the building apparatus that everything else is going to come up and rest on. And it makes me think about that interaction between Peter, Jesus and his disciples. You remember the interaction in Matthew 16? Who do, the, who, who do the people say that I am? Well, some people think you're John the Baptist. Come back to life, Jesus. Uh, some people think you're Elijah. Some people think you're one of the prophets, Jesus. He said, oh, okay, guys. But who do you think that I am? Who, who do you say that I am? And, of course, we all know the classic. Peter said, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in that statement, that wonderful, often misunderstood statement, blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but the Holy Spirit. And I say that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And sadly, many have said, well, that, that foundation was Peter. No, it wasn't. Right. Peter means pebble. That's Petros. Christ said Petra. That, that, that bedrock that juts out from the, the sand under, over the top of it. Mm. What is that bedrock? It's the Lordship of Christ. And so at the very core of who the church is must be the Lordship of Christ. Which means that every model that we implement, every idea and concept that evolves has got to be based on what Jesus did. And so regarding culture, I'm talking about core values. Core values are so important. Those are those non-negotiables I mentioned earlier of the what. What are our non-negotiables? We all have them. We may not recognize them as core values, 
but they are at the very heart of who we are and how we function. And so as a church, you've got to define your core values, and they must, if you're going to be a disciple-driven model, they must relate back to that discipling process. Now, what I've done, and I don't don't mean to sound arrogant, and we haven't arrived, we're still journeying there, but for my team and, and for myself, we're working hard to implement a culture, so we came up with three values. And, and, you know, I'm just throwing them out there. A dollar twenty-five and this will get you a cup of coffee. So, um, make much of Jesus. When we went back and we looked at the book of Acts, every time something happens, whether it's a miracle or whether it's a confrontation with the religious leaders, and whether it's Peter or Paul or whoever it is, inevitably they identify and point everything back to Jesus. I think about Peter before the people. Hey, if I'm on trial today... For a miracle done, you just need to know the miracle was done in the power of Jesus. Everything went back to Jesus. And so for us, in our disciple-making model, uh, core value number one is it must make much of Jesus. Number two is maturing in Christ-like character. Remember what I told you, the definition? Someone who's becoming more like Jesus and who is carrying on his work. And so for us, the second core value is it must help people mature in Christ-like character. Help them become more like Jesus. Number three, deals with conduct. It must position people to multiply by investing in others. To me, that's what Jesus did for three awesome years. He invested in a core few. Even to a greater degree in Peter, James, and John because they got to see the transfiguration. They got to see marvelous, wonderful, heavenly vision there. And rightfully so. They were going to be the key leaders. And so when you think about core values, number one, I would encourage you, I don't know if you've seen this or not. I'm not sure if that's their core, where their core values are in this paradigm. But I, I give kudos to Brent Wood because these are in every single classroom that I've seen. I have not gone into a single And I love what they've done here because for me, they've defined their purpose in the center. Maybe they put their values on the outside of that, and then they put something else, which I'm going to define in a moment, on the outside of that. I think it's great. Yeah. Because number one, if I'm a teacher, every Sunday I see, hey, I'm here to accomplish that. Yeah. Or if I'm a student, every week I'm saying, hey, I'm being equipped to accomplish that. So kudos to Brentwood on that. I think that's great. And I'm challenged and I'm already telling my operations guy, hey, here's your next job, by the way. He likes to spend money anyways. He won't care. <laughs> All right, so purpose. Why do we exist? Culture. What are our non-negotiables? And then lastly, how? How are we going to accomplish this? And here's where we as practitioners have to be careful. Um, I'm a pastor, so I can come up with slogans, man. I can slogan with the best of them. You give me 10 minutes and a little bit of time, and I can slogan you to death. But that doesn't mean it relates to our disciple-making culture. It doesn't mean it, it, it somehow enables our disciple-making vision. And so when I talk about pathway, process, I'm talking about the framework and the filter. Um, just kind of going back to my history, um, I'm a carpenter by trade. My father, from a very early age, trained my brother and myself to be carpenters. And so I think in terms of construction, I think in blueprints, I think in stepwise fashion, this must happen before this can happen, before this can happen. If you don't do this correctly, this won't turn out well at all. Um, And so, like, for instance, if you don't get the foundation square, then you will beat your head against the wall for the rest of that job. You know, and so... If you don't get your foundation established correctly in your core values, you will be discouraged in your pathway because you don't you won't know how to flesh that out. And most importantly, if you don't know where you're going, how on earth are you going to determine how to get there? Meaning purpose. So really spend a lot of time on those two. Number three is pathway, uh, filter framework, and I'll explain why I say filter framework. So how will we do this? So what is a pathway? Well, technically. A pathway is a sequential process that is designed to intentionally guide an individual from being an unbeliever to being a disciple maker. So a disciple making pathway actually starts with the exploring side of things. They're outside, they're not even inside the body of Christ yet, but they're exploring. Why am I here? They're trying to answer those four key fundamental questions that every person asks. Uh, and there are more, some people debate that as well. And so when I say framework, what I mean is a framework for determining and then defining how everything you do is purposed for disciple-making. And why do I include that? Do you remember one of the five characteristics that Cliff mentioned? Remember, it was the last one. 
we anesthetize the pain of dying with busyness. As a pastor, I did not equate our unhealthiness with not being busy enough. I was busy, although some of my deacons disagreed with me with that. I was very busy. Our church was very busy. We had program after program after program, and so our, our, our unhealthiness was not related to the fact that we weren't busy, we weren't doing, we were just doing a lot of things, but we didn't have an intended focus for those things. Those things were not determined. They were all this and not this. And that's what Pathway does, folks. Pathway determines everything. It, it takes things from being this and isolated to themselves and forces them into this type of a paradigm of saying, this must be a means to a greater accomplishment. And so when you think about Pathway, uh, and again, I, being a disciple of Craig, I kind of follow along with his model. You have four steps, and there may be more, but again, don't convolute it. Explore, connect, and then I change up a little bit with invest and multiply. Explore, connect, invest, and multiply. And, and what we do with that is we use this as a filter to determine if we're going to keep it or not. Um, I, borrow, I borrow from uh, Robbie Gowdy that he says kiss in a different way. He says kiss meaning keep it, improve it, start it, or stop it. You know, we don't really think about keep it simple, stupid, but he uses it as a different acronym, and I like that. And so what we're doing in our in our revitalization process is we're taking every activity, every event, every program, everything we do must fit inside of this framework somewhere. And if it doesn't, then we ask the kiss. Do we keep it? Can we improve it? Should we stop it? And we're very, very... Um, we're very hesitant to start anything right now because we're already so busy. I'm always telling my guys, I said, nope, table it, table it. I don't want to hear that right now. I, I, I'm not interested in that right now. And so what you're able to do then when you have a pathway is you're able to come in here in a practical, measurable way, determine if what you're doing as a ministry whole is moving people from uninterested and an unbeliever along this paradigm toward becoming a multiplier where now they're investing into somebody else's life the glorious truth of the gospel through evangelism, the maturing information of Scripture toward becoming a disciple-maker themselves. That's huge, folks. That, I believe, with all my heart, and I know I'm not the official statement, I, I, I'm nobody, but I'm seeing it in my own situation. I've been there a year and a half. I've already got 40-plus equipped disciple-makers who will launch in 2020, discipling their own two to three men and women. So that by the end of 2020, we could feasibly have 200-plus equipped disciple-makers. That's over 50% of my congregation. They're doing it in a shipyard. We have a giant shipyard that makes like uh, aircraft carriers. About. They're doing it in their shipyard prior to work. They're meeting an hour early for work. Chevron has the largest refinery in the United States near us. They're doing it at the refinery. They're doing it in their schools. After school's over, teachers are getting together. It's happening, not because of me. I'm a peon. But because we gave them a paradigm to operate in that they can understand and implement. We're simplifying things. But not for the sake of simplicity, for the sake of disciple-making. And there's a difference. Because I read Simple Church, too. It made me frustrated also. <laughs> but I love it. I love Geiger. I think Geiger's a brilliant man. I absolutely do. So let me leave you with this one quote because here's one thing I was discouraged about. So I, I love Rainer. I, I love St- I love all of them. But they were all saying, so why is the church dying? What's the problem? They were all saying there's not enough prayer. There's not enough small group. There's not enough... Mark Clifton was the only one who said this, and I quote, In reality, dying churches don't primarily have an attendance problem, a giving problem, or a baptism problem. They have a discipleship problem. I couldn't agree more. Man, I love the established church. When a church is making disciples who make disciples, all those other issues will be addressed. Good old King James word, shall be addressed. I believe with all my heart, and I hope you do too. Because the fact of the matter is, if we'll be intentional about making disciples, that 70-something percent I told you earlier, by the way, this number, I, I agree, this number's not accurate. It's, it's lower than that. We've got some churches that are blowing out of the water. They're doing well. So it's like 70, it's about 73, 74 percent, I think, is the number we came up with. 
If we will be intentional about making disciples and bring that process into my Lord's church and make it the driving force of what we're doing, both in why we exist, what's the non-negotiables, and how we'll accomplish it, we'll see a revival. And who was the brother I was talking to earlier? It won't be this emotional stuff. So that when the evangelist has poked him and run, two weeks later, everybody's now off of that emotional high. It'll be a spiritually based maturing process where people have been taught how to walk with God, being a self-feeder, how to reach their world, engage people in gospel conversations, and ultimately how to invest all of that into somebody else's life. It is a, it is a multiplying model, and that's how we're going to make the church healthy. Amen. Amen. I believe with all my heart. Amen. Sorry, I didn't mean to get preached. <laughs> all right, um... I think we've got a few minutes. I must have been talking a little faster than I thought I was. <laughs> By the way, I'm not from here, if you can't tell that, my accent. Um, any questions about that? I know we're going to do Q. You, you want to just wait and hold everything in the Q&A and give them a little bit longer break, brother? You can take a couple of questions, and then we'll hold the rest of them for uh, Okay, maybe just one or two questions. Maybe this will spur us all to kind of getting us thinking about it. Yes, sir. I had a great time on that when you, when you work on breaking this into an established church, that you get a lot of people who see it as a... Uh, diversion from tradition and end up going somewhere else to, to begin with? And I've already experienced that in my current context. Uh, question is, when you bring this and begin implementing that, will you have some folks leave? And I can answer affirmatively, you absolutely will. Um, because some of this will come into conflict with tradition. Uh, it doesn't naturally in some cases. It depends on what that tradition was established on. If it was established on good theology, then there's a great chance it won't come into conflict. It may just have to look a little different. And um, I'm a 40-something-year-old pastor now. A, my 30-year-old pastor would absolutely put dynamite in that and blow it to smithereens. Uh, I got a young man on the stopping right now. He likes to use an axe. I'm trying to train him how to use a scalpel, you know, and strategically cut away and, and purposefully move through that change process. Uh, we have had some folks that said that's that's just not what, what I, I know to be church. And I begged and pleaded with them. But you've got a great point, brother. You can expect conflict. I'm going to go ahead and say another thing. You can expect Satan to attack. Yep. Right now, my faith family is under attack. We are being attacked like I've never seen a church attack before. And I've been pastoring for 16 years. Cursing a blessing. It's a blessing that Satan sees us as an enemy, as a threat to his kingdom. Praise God he does. In that sense, I say bring it on. But as a pastor who has my number one gift is mercy, my heart's hurting. And I, and I confess that to my faith family this past week. I said, I am grieving heavily because I know what's going on. And we're being attacked, man. It's tough. It happened to Christ. It happened to Christ. He said, they hated me, they'll hate you also. Good point, brother. They left him as well. They did. They abandoned. In the midst of the chaos, they abandoned. Absolutely. Yes, sir. You, uh, you built your pathway into uh, a quipping track. Did you, can you say a word about your quitting of your teams? Absolutely. So, first of all, um, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm disciple of Craig. We tra I trained my staff first. I discipled them first. So that as I was using terms, terminology, as I was implementing pathway uh, thinking, because this was foreign to them as well. That way they would be on, we wouldn't be uh, upset with one another. But what happens is, is as people come into our faith family, our new member orientation type process, we introduce them to that step by step and let them know this was expected of you. You'll be expected to get into a small group. You'll be expected to invest your gifts and talents as we help you understand what they are. You will be expected to multiply. I believe that we set the expectation high and we set it early. If they don't like it, they can go ahead and leave before we put hours and hours of time into them. I want to know that we've invested time that we're going to see the returns of kingdom growth in that process. All right, the boss is coming forward here. So I tell you what, if, if you're able to stay for our Q&A, I think it would be a tremendous time for you, but I understand there's a lot of possibilities out there. Thank you for enduring me. I appreciate it tremendously. That's it for today's episode. Check out Disciple First's founder's book, Invest in a Few by Craig Etheridge when you go to discipleship.org slash ebooks and look for Invest in a Few. Thanks for listening. Until next time.